Our sermon today is taken from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. This is the word of God. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Thus says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let us pray for the preaching of God's word. Lord, you are a God beyond all praising. Your power is unfathomable to us. It is infinite. And through your word, you made the heavens and the earth and everything that's in it. And Lord, your word also became flesh in the form of our Lord Jesus Christ to reveal to us your great love for us. Father, we now come under the teaching of your written word that you have inspired by your Holy Spirit to guide us. I pray, Father, that you can give us ears to hear that we may draw near to you and understand what is in your heart and to see through your perspective that we may go boldly doing what you have called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Fun fact, guys. Christianity is not only the biggest religion in the world, but it is the most diverse and multi-ethnic religious movement in the history of the world. And our holy text, the Bible, is by far the most accessible piece of literature on the planet. In fact, it is possible that within our lifetime, the Word of God would at least be partially available in every known living human language. So it's really such a shame that in these modern times where technology is so advanced and creature comforts are so readily available and life is far more convenient than ever before, what tends to get lost and ultimately underappreciated is the immense struggle that the faithful saints had to brave and to endure to get Christianity where it is today. Because humanly speaking, the only way that Christianity could have advanced throughout history is through the work of incredibly courageous humans who dared to progress the message of the gospel even though the odds were firmly stacked against them. One such human is named David Livingston. He was a Scottish doctor, missionary, and explorer who gave his life in order to preach the gospel in the African continent. 
while at the same time doing that, basically ending the East African slave trade. Guys, if you've never heard of David Livingston, I encourage you to look him up. I almost guarantee that you will be inspired, even if you're not a Christian. So after David Livingston started his mission in Africa, he returned to the UK only twice. And in one occasion, he gave this lecture to some students in Cambridge, where some of them asked him about the sacrifices he made by spending much of his time in Africa. And this was his response. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then, with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this be only for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? And whenever we encounter such people who could face adversity with some defiant boldness, we wonder how anyone could get to that point. And by the way, David Livingston wasn't this exceptionally gifted individual, or was he born, nor was he born into privilege with a lot of resources. His father was a Sunday school teacher and he worked at a cotton factory, right? But despite the resources and the privilege David Livingston didn't have, what he did have was a heart that was deeply moved by the gospel and the discipline of prayer. In fact, when David Livingston finally died of malaria in Zambia, he was found in his mud hut by his bed, kneeling in prayer. So today, friends, we will be continuing our series on the book of Acts, where the church is at a point in history where, like David Livingston, they were facing some immense challenges. In fact, the last thing that happened for our text was Peter and John being threatened by the religious establishment, yet refusing to be intimidated. And these were not empty threats, right? And we will see later that things will get much, much harder for them. But in our text, we learn how the early church remained undeterred in the face of imminent danger. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit, which they accessed through prayer. And exactly what they prayed for makes up the main part of our text. And through this, I think we can learn a biblical paradigm for accessing Holy Spirit power. Because we see that there are at least three things that the first church did in order to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? Our three points. To receive the power of the Holy Spirit, we must continuously and prayerfully do three things. One, plant our identity in who God is. Two, interpret reality in light of what God says, and three, arrange our agenda in accordance to what God is doing. Let us enter the text with ears to hear that the Holy Spirit may speak to us. Okay, so point one, in order to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, we must plant our identity in who God is. So 
after the apostles were released, having been threatened by the Sanhedrin, in verse 23, we saw that they immediately went to the gospel community and told them the news. And this was a big deal, guys. They were rejected, not by regular authorities that people didn't like, like the Romans, who nobody liked anyway, but they were threatened by the Sanhedrin, the most respected religious and civil authority in the land. So certainly this causes a great deal of fear and anxiety in the church. And even it was a potentially hurtful thing, right? Because they were rejected, not by some foreigners, but their own people. People who they would consider as brothers. So these guys, they haven't been Christian for long, most of them. And now it feels like the whole world is against them. And just as we see the first church do here, the appropriate response in times of desperation, whereby it is quite human, to be overwhelmed by the threat we are facing, the appropriate response is to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive grace and mercy in our time of need. And to do that together, friends, is especially powerful. Because Jesus himself said in Matthew 18, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there am I among them. So this is what they did exactly. Gather to ask of God. So notice how they began their prayer in verse 24 and 25. They were led to first of all be planted in who the Lord is. And in this particular instance, we see that the early church reminded themselves about three aspects of God's character that is particularly relevant in light of the situation they are in. First, they didn't address the Lord as, you know, generically as God, nor even call Him their Heavenly Father. But they referred to Him as Sovereign Lord. Those two words here is actually just one word in the Greek, despota, right? And it sounds like the English word, despot but without any negative connotation, but retaining the idea that the one they are addressing right now is the one who is in the position of absolute and a complete authority. Now, why is it important particularly for them to remember this in their situation? Well, because if you recall what just happened, they were threatened by the local authorities. So they needed to be reminded of who it was that was actually in charge who it is that gets to give them orders. And then secondly, closely related to the first, they reminded themselves that God is the creator. Because not only does a sovereign Lord hold the position of authority, he is the one whose power is unmatched by any other, the creator of heaven and earth and the sea and all the creatures that's in it. That, that he is a limitless God with infinite power. He's the author of life himself. So they do not have to be afraid. This completely makes sense, right? The first church was threatened by this worldly authority that wanted to stop them from fulfilling their mission. And so when they were against circumstances and institutions that they were powerless against, ultimately, they needed to be deeply assured in order not to be bullied into submission and live in perpetual fear. They need to have this absolute assurance that the one who commissioned them on this task and the one who is on their side supporting what they're doing is far more powerful than the authorities that is threatening them. In order that, 
they can have boldness, right? In other words, what they first did was they formed their identity around who God is. In this particular case, it is as his loyal servants and creatures of the sovereign and creator of all things in order to find the ability to keep calm and carry on. Uh, so as some of you may know, right, I was a thoroughly sinful child and confession time, I used to pick a fight and was a bit of a bully, right? And I was a bigger kid too, so there weren't that many kids my age who could fight back. And this was a total power trip for little Sam, right? Because it made me think that I could impose my will on other kids by force. But you know which kids consistently was able to stand up to me? The ones who had older brothers who they were sure could beat me and were not afraid of me. And they had absolute confidence that their brother would strike down upon me with great vengeance and furious anger if I dared to do anything to them. Because they were planted in their identity as the one loved by the stronger one, they could stand up to the bully. This is the kind of assurance that the first church was asking for. And it is one that we have in every situation against whatever and whoever threatens us. We would turn our eyes towards the Lord and take refuge in Him. Right, so before I move on to the third thing, I feel like we have to really get this point. Right? Did you notice what they did? They began their prayer by forming their identity through intentionally meditating on the particular feature of God's character that counters their source of anxiety. And this precise and personalized application of the gospel to the heart in our prayers and meditation is absolutely crucial to laying hold of the gospel power that is available to us. But you see, even though I've been a Christian all my life and did a bit more Bible study than the average person, this is still a discipline that I have to intentionally do. Because although in my head I know that God is powerful and He loves me and so on and so forth, when stress and anxiety hits, the spiritual amnesia that I'm prone to kicks in and the knowledge of God that's in my head never makes it down to my heart. And when this happens, I do what animals do when they see a threat. They either fight, flight, or freeze. Freeze, meaning I just don't do anything and hoping that it'll just somehow blow over. Flight, by trying to escape or you know, by distracting or entertaining myself so I don't even have to think about the problem altogether. Or if I really have to fight by feeding my pride to the point where I feel prideful or confident more than I feel my fear. And that, of course, doesn't always work out because you know, when I freeze, the problem often gets worse. I can't run away from my problems forever. And no matter how prideful I get, life has its way of serving me a big old slice of humble pie and putting me in my place. While I'm doing this, God feels awfully distant. And so I still feel like I'm on my own having to bear the weight of the world upon my shoulders. So when, we, when this happens, right, when we notice ourselves struggling to get over the situation, when we feel alone and God's promises feel more like wishful thinking than a blessed assurance, 
What needs to happen is for us to truly see who God is. To the point that we don't only have an idea of what, is God, what God is like, but be able to be moved by who He is. To the point where we get lost in this amazement of His unspeakable love and eternal power. To the point where we don't only understand that God is good, but is actually able to taste His goodness. For it is only then, when our identity and security is planted in God, we'll be able to see that God is bigger than our problems and then come to take refuge in Him. This is where, friends, all our prayers must begin. Therefore, we need to pray to more than just this abstract, theoretical, superficial idea of God, but according to a personal relationship with God, being fully aware of exactly why God can and will help this particular situation. Right? And this may differ based on the situation. Perhaps at this moment you need to remember more uh, God more as a father and a friend or as Lord and sovereign, right? Whatever it is, the Bible gives us enough of a complex and multifaceted description of God to give us strength in every situation and in every season. Which is why the third thing that the first church kept in mind about God in verse 25 is crucially important as we come to him in prayer, that he is a God who speaks Right here, it says that he spoke through his servant David by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, David wasn't the only one God spoke to back then, right? There was a bunch of people, including the apostles. And the incredible thing is the church today, right, has everything that God wants to remember about what he has said, written in this incredible book. One, that we can get free of charge in multiple ways, in a language that any of us, or most of us at least, can be comfortable with, right? And you all know which book I'm talking about. We cannot overstate, friends, the importance of the word in our prayer. Without it, our prayer life will inevitably stagnate, right? Because our sinfully forgetful hearts needs to have it constantly reminded and filled with truth about who God is. And in the Bible, right, the Holy Spirit has given us these profoundly deep and beautiful concepts and imagery that will continue to deepen and renew our grasp on who our God is, even if we study it for a lifetime. So meticulously, intentionally involving the scriptures in our prayer is the only way we can expand our vocabulary about God, to speak of God more precisely and correctly so he can touch our hearts more personally, that we can see him work in our situation accurately. So as the scripture teaches us, right, to see more God more clearly, what we will also see is that not only that God is bigger than our problems, but we will be able to see our problems for what they really are, which is point two. To receive the power of the Holy Spirit, we must interpret reality in light of what God had said. So we can see there in verse 25, 26, 
that what the church proceeds to do after planting their identity in God is, quote, the opening of Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2 as a whole is a reflection on the assurance that Israel's king, the Lord's anointed, is destined to triumph and will be the one to rule over the whole earth as his representative. And later in verse 7 of the psalm, we see David described as this anointed king and uh, as God's begotten son. So the apostles' friends were convinced that, especially after the resurrection, that Jesus of Nazareth was this royal begotten son of God that is spoken of by the psalm. And the part that is quoted by our text, by the first church, right, meditates on the fact that it was foreknown by God from long ago that the rulers of the earth and the peoples and the Gentiles would oppose God's Son and gather against Him. So we see then in verse 27 in our text, their conviction about who Jesus is enabled them to see the opposition they faced not as a setback or a roadblock, but actually as a fulfillment of Scripture. Exactly what they should have expected. See, as such, they were able to connect that when Jesus was crucified by Herod and Pontius Pilate, it was no surprise to God. They were actually acting like the rulers and kings of the earth in the psalm were supposed to. So they were able to regard even the threats, whatever they received from the Israel and the Gentiles, as exactly what Scripture said would happen. And as such, they were not shaken. As it is also written, that their rebellion against God will ultimately prove to be fruitless. Because, as verse 28 concludes, they were doing whatever God's hand and God's plan has predestined to take place. See, friends, their experience of Christ and conviction about who He is enabled them to read the Scriptures with a fresh perspective, such that they can lean on the fact that God's sovereign hand is at work. You see, because it was only by having this perspective were the first Christians able to accept that their decision to follow Jesus and proclaim Him as Christ committed them to endure some of the persecution and suffering that our Lord Himself endured. So you see, friends, what this first church did there. Instead of letting their external circumstances define them, rule over them, and set their expectations on them, they looked to God's Word to define their circumstances. They put on the lens of Scripture in order that they can see things from God's perspective. In other words, right, and the young, reformed, and restless might get a little nervous here. First Church were able to have a prophetic view of history and interpret reality in light of what God had said. And this was incredibly empowering to them. Right? And no, I don't mean we should match like current events to the book of Revelation or anything like that. See, because if we study scriptures, what we will find is that prophets are way more than some fortune tellers or people who saw some trippy visions. They were actually people who had radical encounters with God and were sent to speak on God's behalf, declaring God's perspective on how things are 
and calling people to repentance and warning them of the consequences if they do not. Exactly what the apostles were doing. Right? And it is also what we must discipline ourselves to do to move forward in our missions as followers of Christ. Because get what? We now have God's perspective in written and digital form. And we are also sent to proclaim what God had said. Because you see, friends, when things don't go according to plan, when we encounter major roadblocks in our lives, we would try well, immediately at first, to regroup and remedy the situation ourselves. But when it doesn't get better and we realize that we're powerless actually to make it better, better and we have already put a lot in there and there's a lot of stake and we've invested so much, what we were prone to do against this immovable object in front of us is catastrophize the situation. Whereby we can't help but tell ourselves that we're doomed, I'll never be happy, or I'm useless. It's like having this cognitive distortion whereby our problems look like they're on steroids while we look small and the only thing we see is how things can go wrong and the worst case scenarios. So what we must do is we must realign ourselves. Right? It's like pressing the GPS buttons to recenter ourselves on our path, which is God's path. Because friends, as much as prayer and reading the scriptures um, is talking to God, it is also talking to ourselves, aligning ourselves with God's narrative instead of the narrative we made up in our heads or the culture's narratives or the world's narrative, right? As Martin Lloyd-Jones here says, right? Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? The most important sermon you'll ever hear is the one you preach to yourself. See that, friends? The most important sermon you hear is the one you preach to yourself. And this applies to us individually and also corporally as a church as seen in our text. Because you see, the Bible, friends, is designed such that it can speak transcendently across cultures and periods of times. It is relevant for all people at all times. Because we are meant to be able to see our story in the story of the Bible. Such that as we read and study the Bible, we begin to find that the Bible actually read us. So we need to come to it and let it. And even though we live relatively sheltered lives compared to the early church, and perhaps we do have much more freedom to practice our faith without fear of persecution, it is still imperative for us to intentionally adopt a biblical perspective on everything so as not to be allured and distressed by the narrative that the world forces us to adopt and feeds us with constantly. This must happen in every aspect of our lives, right? For example, the culture tells us that our value of pe as people is determined by our monthly income, our career, or accumulation of assets. But the Bible's narrative is that all these things will pass away and there is an infinitely more valuable treasure that we have in heaven. The popular media tells us that it is impossible for us to be happy unless we're sexually liberated and satisfied. But the Bible's narrative is that humans are called 
to holiness and self-sacrificial relationships that reflects the love between Christ and the church. And we might even tell ourselves that the purpose of our own lives is to enjoy ourselves as much as possible and to experience as much pleasure and joy as possible. But the Bible's narrative is one of suffering unto glory and to live is Christ and to die is gain. To name a few examples, I'm sure you can think of some yourself. But if we search our hearts and we're honest, which narratives do we believe? Which narratives do we live by? So we all need this realignment constantly. And we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to help us do so. Because it is only after we are securely planted in our relationship to God and are able to be walking in the light of His truth, will we be able to receive, exercise, and enjoy the power of the Holy Spirit as we answer the call to participate in God's mission to heal the world. Just point three. To receive the power of the Holy Spirit, we must arrange our agenda in accordance to what God is doing. So, after forming their identity in God and allowing His Word to guide them, look at what the first church says. They finally uh, made their request in verse 29. They said, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, this is interesting, right? Because if uh, we look at the end of Psalm 2, the psalm that they quoted, what the Lord does to those who oppose his anointed is laugh at them, right? Send his wrath upon them, smashing them with a rod of iron. So you would expect, right, that the request, you know, would be somewhere along the lines of, you know, break them, Lord, show them who's boss, or, you know, protect us, Lord, we're with you. But they didn't do that. Instead of asking God to solve their problems and change their circumstances, they ask God for courage, for more boldness to speak His words. I'm not saying, of course, right, that it's wrong for us to ask God to change their circumstances so that we can feel safe and relieved. You know, like we do that all the time. God certainly loves us and will not hold back anything good from us, and He is certainly able to change their circumstances. But what I want to point out is how the first church here got to the point where instead of asking God to bring down their enemies, it was more important for them to be able to bless them with God's word. And what follows actually in verse 30 clarifies this. It says, while you stretch your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see, the reason why the church here asked for boldness instead of justice was because they were not only able to see things from God's perspective, but they were able to have God's heart through their knowledge and relationship with Jesus. They knew what the mission of God is right now in this period. And it's not yet to rain fire upon the reprobate sinners who rebel against Him, but rather God's mission right now is to gather and perfect the saints, to heal the world and glorify the name of Jesus by the signs and wonders which are done in His name. And we, friends, as the church, have been given the incredible privilege to participate and partner with Him in this mission. 
See, the apostles were aware that the Sanhedrin and their religious establishment wasn't even their biggest problem. But they were bust with a speed bump, right? Policy In a much larger battle they're fighting. The struggle against sin, which has made the realm of our master polluted and desperately sick. Against the sin that caused those who threatened the church to oppose God in the first place. And now, through Jesus, there is hope even for them. The gates of salvation is open to the most militantly opposed to the message of the gospel, such that even the most hostile enemies of God can become some of his greatest servants. And the story of one such enemy of God we will study later in the book of Acts. Because you know what is actually the greatest sign and wonder performed in the name of Jesus? I mean, the lame man being healed is pretty cool, but what is much better and equally impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit is the wonder of a sinner's heart who had a heart of stone, who is hardened in his sin and naturally hates God, can somehow repent to call Jesus as Lord. You see, friends, before Jesus, while we were still in our sin, the Bible actually tells us that the relationship that we had with God was as his enemies, as rebellious creatures who refused to follow a righteous master who desires actually to bless us and lead us to that which is truly life. But we rather choose to be our own masters, to satisfy our own desires. And this has made us desperately sick. Unable to break free of the selfishness and pride that poisons human relationships and destroys God's creation. This is God's narrative, God's perspective on the human condition. But this narrative is now able to change. When Jesus came into the world, he who was himself God was born human just like we were. But rather than rebelling against God, Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience to him. And rather than executing the justice of God, Jesus actually took on the judgment and punishment for guilt of guilty sinners, the punishment meant for us by dying on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God. And it is because Jesus did that, sinful humans are now able to be free of this sin that enslaves us and to have a personal relationship with God. This sinful world can not only now be his servants, but be adopted as his children. So now, from heaven, Jesus Christ sent his Holy Spirit to empower and heal us from our sinfulness. So that those who call upon his name and acknowledge his Lord, him as Lord, can partner with him on this incredible mission to restore and heal the world that has been broken by sin. Brothers and sisters, this is God's agenda for the world right now. It's what is he doing? So if we get with the program, like the apostles in the early church, we will not be standing away in the way of the progress of history. Rather, we are going to be participating in something that is eternally meaningful and of utmost value. And the Lord, just like we see what happened to the early church in verse 31, 
will send the Holy Spirit to strengthen us and equip us to do what we cannot do for ourselves, to be able to stand up against the hostility of a world that is still in rebellion against Him. Luke eleven thirteen says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Our Heavenly Father will not withhold anything good from us, friends. He will not withhold the Holy Spirit. And He knows what is best for us is to be with Him. So we feel anxious and afraid that you cannot stand up to this world. If you feel that you will never be good enough to partner with God in this mission, rejoice and be encouraged. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, which is forming your identity, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you adopt the narrative of the cross. God will not deny you of the strength and healing that you need when you ask it of Him. And though we will struggle, and we will have to leave behind some of these comforts in this life to do this faithfully, through the promise of the Holy Spirit, we will be able to agree with David Livingston when he says, all these are nothing compared to the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your servant is finished speaking. Lord, allow us to remember who you are. We often, Lord, live functionally as atheists. Although theoretically we know that we live before you and you see all things, we make our decisions apart from you as if you're not there. And we often, Lord, can adopt the world's narrative about things. We try to seek the world's approval, be seen as powerful and achieve in the eyes of the world and neglect pleasing you and living and doing what is actually most important. What is your purpose in our life? Send your Holy Spirit, Lord, and give us a holy discontent when we stray from you and when we do not hold fast to your call, to the calling you have given us in our lives. And give us, Lord, the Holy Spirit, that we may have courage, even in the face of um, threats, even in the face of anxiety, even in the face of possibly giving up things that, that give us comfort. Because you know what you have for us is much greater, much better, and ultimately much more fulfilling than anything that we can hold on to in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.